You've got questions. We've got all the answers when it comes to sex and more. This is the A to Z of sex with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. Every week, we pick a series of topics that you've been wanting to know about. It's an encyclopedia of sex, intimacy, relationships, and so much more than that. Let's get things started. Now, here's your host, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the A to Z of sex with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I'm a sex and intimacy coach and a psychologist, and I've spent the last 30 plus years helping people to create hot and healthy sexual and intimate relationships. We are working our way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time. Today, the letter is an M is for mental health, mental illness, and sex. If sex is a natural part of the human experience, how are sexual relationships affected when someone experiences mental illness? Are there types of sexual interactions that equate to having a mental illness? What does normal look like? Joining me today to talk about these topics and more is Nikki Fuentes. Owner of Modern Tribe Counseling, Nikki Fuentes has been working in the behavioral health community for close to 25 years with experience in both direct care and administrative oversight capacities. Nikki's clinical practice helps gender, sexuality, or relationship structure minorities overcome substance use, mood and anxiety disorders, engage in positive sexual health, and develop skills and resiliency to live their lives authentically. Nikki is an active member of the American Psychological Association Division 44, Consensual Non-Monogamy Task Force, and a coalition partner of the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom. Welcome to the show, Nikki. Thanks, Lori Beth. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. Well, it's evening here, believe it or not. It's 7 p.m. in the UK. And <laughs> well, the thank you for having me. My pleasure. So let's start with let's start with mental illness. I, I was thinking about that the other day, um, and I noted how often that when people are being treated for mental illness, their sex lives aren't really considered. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, I spent a lot of years working in community mental health centers, and I remember specifically working with folks who have severe and persistent mental illness, like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and it was part of how I decided I want to do this kind of work, because the clients would come to us complaining about things like erectile dysfunction or lack of desire or the inability to achieve orgasm. And the general school of thought from the psychiatrist or other treatment team members was that's not important, right? That the focus was more on you're not hearing voices or you're not having mood swings. And it was really frustrating. I, I mean, I, I, that, that winds me up no end. Um, the yeah. idea, I mean, I do get it. I do get how hard it is to treat the voices and, and, um, and delusions and the different kinds of, of, psychic phenomena that go on, particularly in psychotic disorders, are really disruptive to living a life. Mm-hmm. And so I get that. But a lot of these medications do have side effects that interfere with sexual performance. And the idea that one wouldn't at least look for a solution. I mean, for guys, there's Viagra. There's so many solutions. And the, the first solution I always think about with my clients is how are we defining sex? Right. Society tells us so much that sex is about penetration. Sex is about being insertive or receptive. But how else can we experience sex when we have to take into consideration 
medications or other considerations, other things that may be impacting our mental state. There are still ways to be intimate and sexy. Right. Right. It doesn't have to be penetrative. There are, there are, there are many ways, but the fact that people don't even consider that is, 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 and I, that's been my experience. Um, I see it more. I see, have seen over the years, a number of um, people with bipolar disorder um, and, and that's a reason for going off medication, which is um, when somebody has a, a high manic side is often disastrous. Um, yeah. And so um, while I get, I get it, <laughs> it's often it, it, yeah. it's working with somebody to try and get them to find a medication that works and find a way to express their sexuality that will also work. Um, and. Oftentimes, folks don't have the tools or the language to be able to talk to their healthcare providers so that they can walk in and say, you know, my mood is stable, but my partner and I can't, I can't have an orgasm. Is there something about this medication that is, might be contributing to that? And I don't know how it is out there in the UK, but, you know, here in America, we don't like to talk about sex openly with our healthcare providers. Yeah, um, it's quite similar. I think people find it incredibly difficult to, to talk about sex here, um, let alone with their healthcare providers. Um, and so it's not unusual for healthcare providers to have absolutely no idea what kind of partner a person might have, what gender or genders, whether or not they're engaging in um, risky behavior of any kind, whether or not they're engaging in kinks. I mean, they may know nothing. Other yeah, than, or how they're defining risky behaviors, right? Yep. <laughs> other than the fact that this is a um, biologically female person that I'm dealing with or a biologically male person that I'm dealing with and I'm dealing with the physical part of this um, because people don't say anything. I, it's interesting. I, um, I, I mean, I have had a client just today uh, that was attempting to access healthcare. Uh, they are assigned female at birth, transmasculine person, and they were attempting to uh, speak to an OBGYN about their challenges um, having sex with their partner. And as I sat down and did my assessment, you know, the, the questions I was asking them were about how do you want to use your body sexually as you're experiencing dysphoria? And right. Their doctor didn't ask that question. Their doctor literally gave them the, oh, some people just have that. Some people just have pain during sex. Like, that's just how it is. And yeah, how, does that I, then, how does that then contribute to the depression that this individual is experiencing? It, it, exactly. I mean, where I see that more, so spreading it out from gender and sexually diverse folks that I deal with, just menopause. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Pain in menopause, pain during sex. Well, that's the menopause. Well, actually, it could be about a dozen different things. Uh, in my case, surgery got delayed a really long time because the assumption was made that once I made it through the menopause, this would stop. Mm. Or that if we t- did more hormone treatment or if we used more lubrication. And in fact, I had really bad fibroids. So the pain was because everything was pressing down and and what needed to happen was I needed a hysterectomy. But that wasn't, there was no attention paid to that until um, there was cancer scare. And then the attention was paid to whether or not I had cancer, still not whether there was was a functional reason 
to do an operation that might improve my quality of life. It, it, it was amazing to me. I'm pretty good at speaking. And yet the GP I was seeing at the time just didn't I think more the importance of, of what I was saying. And you bring up such a good point, Lori Beth, that here you are, you are a trained behavioral health professional and you know, you're experiencing something in your body that is uncomfortable and really impacting your sexual health and your sexual experiences. And probably it even sounds like affecting your mood and still felt um, that power in the room to be able to talk to your healthcare provider in a way that, you know, was affirming and and based in self-advocacy. It's really hard. And I think that with mental illness specifically, there's so much stigma assigned to mental illness and the power is given to the health professionals in the room that it makes it hard for folks to talk about what their sexual experiences are and what their needs and desires are around sex. Indeed. I mean, when it's, even if you're able to talk about it, they, you will also have to be able to advocate. So I have no trouble talking about it, but then I had to advocate. And so when you think about, I'm pretty, I'm pretty healthy mentally healthy. Um, I don't suffer depression. and I'm pretty good at speaking my mind. Try somebody who's suffering depression or, or anxiety or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, being able to hold their ground until yeah. they get what they need. It's to incredibly. Feel, to feel brave enough to have that voice, to, to that your voice can be heard. Yeah. And that you're going to make sure that somebody actually understands what it is you're saying and doesn't write it off. And that's really difficult. Um, and we don't have a mechanism for making that easier. You know, there, there doesn't appear to be at this point um, enough education here, and I'm fairly sure there, for health professionals around, and mental health professionals, around dealing with their clients on sex and relationships if they're not identifying themselves as a sex and relationship professional. And we don't receive that, right? Um, I don't know about your PhD program, but I know in my master's program, and I have about six or eight uh, interns under me right now who are recent graduates, and human sexuality is not a requirement. So just even in the behavioral health field, we are not always equipped to be able to have these conversations with our clients and to be able to help empower them and help them develop the advocacy skills that are so necessary to have these conversations. Indeed. So we're just a couple minutes from break. I'll just say that um, it was required in my program, believe it or not, and my and that was in the 80s. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, one class in human sexuality. Um, but we were a pretty forward-thinking program. But, yeah. but, but the class didn't deal with a lot, just saying. <laughs> but yeah, it, biological things. I had one because I chose it as an elective, and we just talked about biology, we didn't talk about sex. Yeah. No, there wasn't a lot of sex talk in ours either. So um, we're a couple minutes from break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to talk about specific things that come up for people with mental illness um, relating to sex and relationships, things like around consent and judgment. Um, and we look forward to hearing from you. If you've got any questions, you know you can phone in and we will answer them or you can email me at Lori Beth at drlorybethbisbee.com and I will answer any questions either on this show or on the next one if we don't get to them this time. So please do write in with any questions. There is no such thing as a stupid question. We look forward to having you back in the next segment. 
Maximize your orgasms and just let go. The Throes of Passion Waterproof Pleasure Blanket guarantees to keep your sheets dry, no matter how wet it gets. From massage oils to lubes and beyond, we've got your bed covered. So just throw it down and get it on and get lost in your very own Throes of Passion. Then toss it aside and bask in the afterglow of great sex in warm, dry sheets. The all-new Naked Fleece provides a soft and sexy playscape, while the stay-dry barrier protects your bed, your couch, and even your carpet. It's machine washable, large enough to cover a king-size bed, and light enough to travel discreetly. To get your own Throes of Passion waterproof pleasure blanket, visit thesexylifestyle.com and order yours today. That's thesexylifestyle.com. Great sex starts now. How do you feel about a non-monogamous lifestyle? Does it sound enticing? Are you worried about what others might think? Your questions are answered on Sex Interrupted with Tara and James. It's a discussion about the swinger lifestyle, non-monogamy, sex, sexuality, and where it all fits in. All we ask is that you listen with an open heart and an open mind, and you will find your desires and fantasies can come true. Tune in to Sex Interrupted with Tara and James every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Sexy Lifestyle Network. This is the A to Z of Sex, featuring Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. We know you have questions. We welcome you to call in to 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Feeling a bit shy? It's okay. Dr. Lori Beth loves to read your emails too. Send them to Lori Beth at drlorybethbisbee.com. Now, more of the A to Z of sex. Hey, welcome back. This is Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, and this is our second segment. We are talking M is for mental health, mental illness, and sex. And we're talking with Nikki Fuentes today. Before the break, I said we would talk a bit about um, how mental illness impacts consent um, when it comes to sex and um, makes decisions about sex more difficult. So one of the things that gets said when people teach consent quite frequently is that um, certain levels of mental illness preclude consent. I don't know how I feel about that, Lori. I mean, so, that, as a, this is a common, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a common statement. So, so, but, but what they're usually talking about is active psychosis. Yeah, and, I don't know how I feel about that one either, but that's me and, you know, years and years and years of just working in community mental health and, for me, I really go to the legal definition of are you are you your own legal guardian and are you under the influence, right? And if you have the ability to understand the decisions that you're engaging in, then you can have discussions based in consent. And I think a lot of times when I think about how mental illness falls into the definition of consent, it's do all the parties involved understand how your mental illness or your mental state um, influences your sexual activity. Yeah, I, I think, but I think one of the issues is, is that I think frequently people don't. 
Um, yeah, they don't have those conversations. No, and they don't, and they don't know to have those conversations. And yeah. so I think if you're talking about, um, and so and so, looking from the point of view of the person who's got um, a serious psychosis that's not controlled, mm-hmm. people get um, abused quite regularly. Yeah, because there isn't an understanding of, for example, suggestibility when somebody's in an altered state. Um, And sometimes it's deliberate, you know, I mean, let's be clear. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes people with psychosis are absolutely preyed upon. Um, There's definitely space, like you're saying, for susceptibility, influence, coercion, um, where the person who's experiencing the psychosis is the recipient of those situations that are, you know, harmful and undesirable. Absolutely. Yep. And sometimes, though, it's not deliberate. And the situation is that the person who's um, attempting to gain consent does not understand the ramifications of the mental illness and the change in mental state. And I'm not sure what to recommend for people in terms of talking about that. Yeah. So I actually have a thing that I do with almost all of my clients. Um, So one of the things that I do with my clients um, in some of my earliest sessions is um, working with someone on elevator speech. What is their elevator speech? How does their mental status, um, whether it's mental illness or a a temporary altered mood because of a life situation, but how does their mental health impact them and the folks around them? So I'll use me as an example, okay? So I'm not telling any client stories. And part of my elevator speech is, hi, I'm Nikki, and I have really bad ADHD. And when I'm out and about in sexually charged environments, sometimes I might lose focus on you as my partner and go off and look at the pretty shiny things in the middle of a scene, even, right? Completely disengaged. So I have to tell that to the folks that might want to engage me in, you know, a sexually charged situation so that their feelings aren't hurt or they don't feel like I've disconnected, right? I'm letting them know up front that this is something that might happen because of my ADD. And then they can make a decision whether or not they want to engage with me. Right. And so I try to teach that skill to my clients, have an elevator speech, let folks know. And we work on that in session to develop what that elevator speech might look and sound like. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you are able to explain what it is that um, happens to you and how that impacts your relationships, then the other person has a better idea about gaining consent, which is incredibly important in every sexual situation. So, you know, this is one of the the more important um, issues to underscore. Um, I think we're one to say that um, if somebody had a particular disorder they couldn't give consent would be in difficulty because people are going to have sex. Absolutely. Everybody has has sex. I've been doing this for, you know, decades in all types of environments, developmental disabilities, the elderly. We were joking around here in the office yesterday that, you know, maybe one day Modern Tribe will open up a nursing home, a kinky nursing home, <laughs> because we're going to get old and we're going to want to have kinky sex. And who's going to let us do that, right? Everybody has sex. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and, and, I, and it, it is and it is an issue um, that 
it's one thing when you are your own guardian, but for some folks, they don't have guardianship anymore. And um, uh, particularly people who are developmentally disabled, yeah. it's a really difficult thing to, to negotiate with their carers. Grown people have grown sexual drives, period. The right. fact that you might have the mental age of a six-year-old does not mean that they don't have grown sexual drives. They're right. going to want to interact and form partnerships with other people they relate to, which are usually other people who have developmental delay. Right. And And good programs really spend time on this, right? And time with the adults who are caring as well. Yeah. I I recall working in um, a conservative group home environment when I was very early in my career and having to have have discussions with family members about the use of birth control, you know, uh, more uh, IUDs or implants, things that we didn't have to remember, you know, um, to be taking, or how do we protect against STIs or STDs? And some family members were very open to those discussions, but most of them, they just didn't want to think that their child would be doing that. Which brings up harder situations, of course, later on, you know, Uh Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, just the, the rights to autonomy. All, all individuals do have a right to autonomy and do have a right to make decisions about their own body and how they want to use them. And no different than, you know, now and now we're talking to parents about, you know, how do you allow your three or four or five or six year old to engage in consent discussions about, I don't want a hug from grandma, or I don't want to sit on grandpa's lap, or, you know, we can have those same types of discussions with folks who biologically might be older, but, or chronologically might be older, but cognitively might be young. And we can have those same types of consent discussions about how do you want to use your body and how do you want your body to be used by others or engaged by others? Yeah. Which is incredibly important. So let's talk a bit about um, normality for a second, because because this is one that comes up so, so often. What is normal? Yeah. Um, And, you know, what I say to people is normal is the norm is, is a statistical term. It's a mathematical term. And it isn't really very useful because it, it means average. So right now, it's normal to have some form of clinical depression sometime in your lifetime. That's not a norm I would like to embrace. Right. But that's how it is statistically at the moment. So where do you stand on what you tell people about sexual normality? (laughs) So I have a couple of different things that I talk about. The first thing I talk about is normal is defined by who holds the power, right? Um, it's a social construct. Um, that's kind of the societal messaging. And I ask the folks that I work with to, um, to see that and recognize that and then dismiss it. Because for me, what's normal is if it's consensual and it doesn't involve, you know, some of the big things, minors, animals, things like that, um, it's fine. 
And I try not to even use the word normal, right? I'm the same. Yeah. I don't don't use the word normal. I also say, but I I say, I, what I basically say is if it's, if it's consensual. So if, if, if the other party can't consent, so animals can't consent, children can't consent. Right. Then it's not okay. Right. Period. And then anything else is up to you and the person that you're negotiating it with. It might not be something I would ever do. But that's. But I'm not here to yuck your yum, Lori Beth. I'm not here to yuck your yum. Whatever it is you want, it's not, you know, that's not my business as long as everybody's consenting. Yeah. And and as a clinician, I'm happy to talk with you about it. I'm happy to explore with you where that might have come from. And are you experiencing distress over it? And if you are experiencing distress over it, let's kind of sort through that and see, is it based in societal shame, AKA whoever holds the power defines what normal is, or is it based in something else? And let's just kind of touch with that because that's my goal, right? Is to help you not to minimize distress, right? That's the goal of therapy is to help minimize distress. Exactly. So we're a couple of minutes out, um, and before we hit break, let me just m- remind you guys about Naughty and Narlands, which is 24 to 28 July 2019. This is the largest lifestyle convention for couples in the world with over 1,300 couples. This event is not only a full takeover of two of the French Quarter's biggest hotels, but it takes over Bourbon Street, too. It's a fantastically fun event. If you want more information and you want to book your spot, visit thesexylifestyle.com and go to the travel and events page where you can book your spot right there. I highly urge you to consider this one this year. It is set to be the best ever. So when we come back from break, we'll talk a little bit about more, a little bit more about normality. I can speak. Um, And then um, we'll also talk some about types of sexual interactions that have in the past been labeled as not acceptable um, and talk about what the current state of play is and that kind of feeds into the discussion on normality. So we'll be back. Don't forget, call in with your questions and do write in with your questions. We'll see you in a couple of minutes. Craving more from your sexy lifestyle? Search our businesses, services, blogs, articles, and videos. And keep in touch with us by subscribing to our newsletter. All on thesexylifestyle.com. When the lights are off, that's no reason not to light things up. Lube Light lets you pop its cap for instant illumination so your lube gets applied to all the sweet spots and never the awkward ones. No more slippery midsection, unless you're into that. You can keep it turned on while you're getting down with your partner. Our ambient lighting is soft enough to never blind while you're doing the grind. No matter what lube gets you vibing, it's compatible with Lube Light. Easier to turn on than your last partner, guaranteed. Get yours today at lubelights.com. Also available on Amazon and SheVibe. What is your level of sexual expertise? Want to find something new? Listen for Sisters of Sexuality every week on the Sexy Lifestyle Network. There's no judgment here, and every topic is safe and sex positive. 
so we'll explore them together. It's time to push your sexual boundaries and try some new experiences with your hosts, Taylor Sparks, Parrish Michelle Blair, and Jet Setting Jasmine, with Marla Renee Stewart and Tiffany Janae. You won't want to miss a single show every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, on the Sexy Lifestyle Network. This is the A to Z of sex, featuring Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. We know you have questions. We welcome you to call in to 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Feeling a bit shy? It's okay. Dr. Lori Beth loves to read your emails, too. Send them to Lori Beth at DrLoriBethBisbee.com. Now, more of the A to Z of sex. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Today is M, and M is for mental health, mental illness, and sex and relationships. And I'm talking with Nikki Fuentes. And before the break, we were talking about normality. Um, mm-hmm. And so one of the things that comes up for me, because I have the same d- definition as you do, um, I'm, I'm very clear that normal is, is constructed concept. Um, and there is nothing that is inherently abnormal sexually. Um, um, and sometimes we'll take people through history to look at different time periods when various things were considered normal and not normal. The easiest one to, to, to look at, if you want to look at what is considered sexy, is to go back and look at what was considered sexy 100 and 200 years ago. And look at the body types and look at the body shapes and look at whether people had pubic hair or not. Right. And understand a bit about the context as to why that was sexy then and what the context is as to what society says is sexy now. And you can see that it's completely constructed. Absolutely. So really it's about what's healthy for you and the person or persons that you're playing with. Absolutely. I don't even know that there's a lot of expansion you can do on that, right? If, if Even but when we think about, go ahead. What I was thinking about was up until very recently, BDSM was, well, sadomasochism in particular was listed in the um, APA, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, as a mental disorder. Mm-hmm. Sexual sadism and sexual masochism were, were listed as paraphilias. And paraphilias were sexual disorders. And that's recently changed. That changed with the last edition, sort of, kind of. Not 100%. Sort of, kind of. They're listed, but some of the language has changed. And I think it allows for um, those of us who use the DSM to not feel as compelled to go there um, and look at this at these behaviors as inherently abnormal, right? Um, Because the language has changed to focus more on distress of the participants, consent, um, mutual involvement, pleasure versus not pleasure, being involved in the exchange. It gives us a lot more um, diagnostic freedom to just kind of stay away from it. For me in particular, I don't work with sex offenders. I work with folks who want to improve their sexual health and sexual interactions. Um, That is the DSM is rarely a place that I'm turning as it relates to folks who are engaging in 
sadism or masochism as part of their sexual expression. Yeah, so it's left in in terms of uh, more in terms of criminal activity. Um, although I don't think they did a service by doing that. I think they would have done better as to actually create a new category. Um, and and um, as they took homosexuality out completely, to actually have removed all of this completely, particularly with the research that highlights, um, you know positive mental health in people who are engaging in these behaviors. So there's no inherent difficulties. It's not no causing any kind of mental illness to engage in these behaviors. It's not indicative of mental illness to engage in these behaviors. It, it's simply choice. It, it, it surprised me when they left it in, because when I think of all the years that I've spent in behavioral health, I always think about, you know, we're, we're taught that the purpose of the DSM is to help us formulate, formulate and conceptualize case ideas and case themes and, you know, help develop some framework. But, you know, the more you become a clinician, you sometimes learn that really the diagnoses are there to drive the funding source, right? And nobody is funding sex therapy. So why do I need to have categories related to sexual sadism or fetishism or other of the erotic paraphilias that it seems that the way the DSM is being used now, that entire category could have been removed because it's, it's not driving funding. I suppose the only, re- the only, the only argument against that is research. Is mm. if, if you're structuring research, which I hope they will do more of. Yeah. Uh, how about, can we shout out to this uh, science of BDSM team for doing all the good research? Yeah. I mean, you know, they've been, they've been at least doing research. Um, yeah. I'd like to see more research. I'd like to see more research by people who are actually engaged. So professionals mm-hmm. engaged in the activities. I, I mean, I think they're doing incredible research, but not being engaged in the activities means that various things get missed. Nuance <laughs> gets missed in the biggest possible way. And so I'd really like to see more people. And I know it's difficult. And as a, um, as a practicing clinician who's done research, outside of a research structure, it's incredibly difficult to get the funding. Um, And often there isn't funding and you're doing it off your own back and then trying to get things published when you're doing it that way is really difficult. So um, they're an amazing group. They're doing research. I'd like to see more of us who are practicing actually doing research as well. Even if all you're doing is collecting data on the people that you see with their permission. So that we have a larger database of where the problems actually are and where they aren't. Uh, And one of the things both you and I feel really strongly about is that clinicians be educated. Um, At the moment, both of us are on the kink aware professionals list Mm -hmm. um, that the NCSS has. Um, There are a couple of other kink aware professionals lists in existence. I think I'm on most of them. Um, (laughs) There aren't that many of us. There's not. And I think one of the things I'm really excited to see, I'm trying to uh, see if I can pull up a post that I just saw today. Um, KTCI is actually looking to um, publish a list of basically standards of care for therapists working with folks who work with, um, uh, I'm going to say alternative, even though I don't like that language, alternative sexualities. Um, So that's a really neat project that's out there right now. Do you want another um, term? I'm sorry? Do you want to have another? No, do you yeah, want I mean, I have term. other terms. <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what I use. I use, sure. I use 
the one that's popular here is gender and sexual diversity. Nice, nice. This is specifically for kink, right? Um, Yeah, so this is, um, it's KTCI, and they're actually gathering information from kink-aware therapists and practitioners who engage in kink and BDSM um, to start informing standards of care for therapists working with individuals who um, are in the kink and BDSM lifestyle. So that's a really neat thing. And um, cool. I know me, pers- me personally, I offer continuing education to therapists here so that they can have a little bit more information. Um, I have a class coming up next week, which is really exciting. Um, so I think those of us who are in the community who are also behavioral health practitioners, um, you know, we're motivated and inspired and passionate and want to help get our peers up to speed because one of the things that happens is we don't have anywhere to go for therapy because all of our friends know us, right? And other therapists just aren't always educated. Well, and in in the UK, um, there's pink therapy um, that Mm -hmm. provides amazing education for all forms of gender and sexual diversity. And that includes um, kink and BDSM. And, um, um, and there are specific classes for um, uh, therapists of all types um, Mm -hmm. that you take with them and get some great basic education as well as some advanced education. They also have a list um, that's very useful as well. I, um, and I do recommend that people consider going to somebody who they don't have to educate as part of their therapy so that all they're doing is educating the person on their version of things, not on the main topic and category. Um, that is one of the probably the things that people complain about the most when they are from any minority group is the need to spend time and effort educating a therapist about the generalities of their minority. And, and um, if you're a therapist, I would advise to do what I do, which is if I come across a group that I'm not familiar with, I go get myself educated first yep. so that the client Absolutely. don't have to tell me their bit. Yep. And, and there's always, when I teach the difference of, tell me what that means to you versus what does that mean, right? Exactly. And if a therapist is asking you, what does that mean? Hmm, my little antennas would go up. But if the therapist is asking, what does it mean to you to be involved in a full-time dynamic? That's your therapist actually seeking to hear what your dynamic looks like and how it impacts you. And there's a big difference in those two questions. Yeah, absolutely. So we're about one minute out from break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation, talk some more about... um, gender and sexual diversity, and the impact on relationships and getting help. And we will look forward to doing that in just about two minutes' time after a word from our sponsors. See you soon. Explore your deeper desires. Listen. Learn and live sexy here on the Sexy Lifestyle Network. Are you ready for your erotic journey? 
Join host Lexi Silver every week for SDC's Seek, Discover, Create, the radio show. Whether you're new at this journey or well-traveled on the sexual road, we'll help you find your way with guest experts and hot topics about sex, relationships, and your health. You can also connect with the communities of SDC.com for even more advice and discussion. Listen every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Sexy Lifestyle Network. Tune in to talk about sex and sexuality from a man's point of view. The Everything Sexy Show is direct, open, and uncensored discussions, ranging from open relationships to kink, sex parties, and self-love. Hosted by Jamal and Polly Rick, they'll answer your questions, discuss topics you're curious about, and provide a safe forum for perverted and provocative discussions you just won't get anywhere else. Check it out. It never hurts to listen. Everything Sexy, Fridays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific on the Sexy Lifestyle Network. This is the A to Z of Sex, featuring Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. We know you have questions. We welcome you to call in to 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Feeling a bit shy? It's okay. Dr. Lori Beth loves to read your emails too. Send them to Lori Beth at drloribethbisbee.com. Now, more of the A to Z of sex. Hey, welcome back to the fourth segment of M is for Mental Health, Mental Illness, and Sex and Relationships. And I'm talking with Nikki Fuentes. And before the break and during the break, um, one of the things that got mentioned very briefly was desire. So let's talk a bit about desire and um, the impact of changes in desire on mood and the impact of changes in of mood on desire. So yeah, that one, right? When oftentimes when an individual within a relationship structure is experiencing depression and they might withdraw from physical aspects of the relationship or medications that they may be taking may actually have a chemical influence on the brain and cause a decrease in desire. And I think education is just a big part of that. Sometimes folks don't realize that that's what's happening. Um, what are some things that you work with with your clients on how to stay engaged but still honor the fact that they may not have a desire to have sex? Well, I, I mean, there are two completely different tactics taken for me. Um, sometimes, though they don't have a desire, an active desire, when they start having sex, they enjoy it. And so in those situations, I actually advise the counterintuitive get started and see how it goes. Yep. And so it's, it's, and sometimes people will be like, but what if I still don't want it? I'm like, then you stop, right? You get to say no, right? And that brings us back to consent. Folks don't understand that we can say, hey, I want to engage with you physically, but I'm not quite sure I feel up to it or how it's going to go. Is it okay if we kiss and see what happens next? Or is it okay if I give you a massage and see what happens next? Yep. And there may not be next. It may just be a nice massage and a nice way to exchange energy with your partner, right? Right. And you may and you may end up stopping in the middle, and that's okay too. Yep, absolutely. But, but if you don't try in some situations, you, you know, what people don't understand is that when you have no desire, you don't think about sex. So it's not even on the radar. There's no place to build from. Lower desire, yeah. lower desire is one thing. Lower desire is, in a sense, um, easier to work with because then it really is about working with 
the partners to deal with the mismatch in desire, to look at as many ways as possible to be intimate, including physically intimate, without necessarily being sexual. Right. Um, And to take it away from being this kind of big pressured, horrible area, um, which is usually what it is by the time people come in. It's usually a nightmare. Um, So that's working not only with educating the partner, as well as educating the person that's come in with the low desire. And sometimes that's difficult because sometimes the partner doesn't want to come in. Right. I, th- I think I use a similar approach even with no desire in that I try to like work with folks, work with the folks within the relationship structure to create a menu and to create language for what they're actually asking for. Because so often we say, I have to have sex. I want to have sex. But sex can mean so many different things, right? I need a stress relief. I need an an energy release. I need to feel close and intimate and share our love or share an energy exchange. And if we can help folks to define what it is they are looking for with their partner, that without using the word sex, sometimes that can release the the pressure, like you're saying, or the, the weight of the conversation, And I find when I can help folks find those types of words or new words to describe what they're asking for, it becomes more approachable for the partner that has no desire. Yeah, that makes it a lot easier. I got a question in um, from an anonymous. And the question is, what do you do when something that you do triggers your partner? It's a good question. It is a good question. I had my own experience there for a minute and I had to quiet it down. So I want to at least say to this person that that is a normal thing that happens in many relationships. Um, Being able to talk about it, being able to talk about what the triggering event might be. I think in some ways that kind of goes back to that elevator speech I was talking about, I think in segment two, if we can talk to each other before we have sexual interactions before we have physical interactions about what our trauma history might be or what things might trigger us, we can work together as a partnership to um, avoid those, right? Or to at least name them for what they are. So if they happen, we have a plan for how to resolve it afterwards. And we don't walk away feeling hurt or guilt or shame that we can't have a conversation around it. Yep, and but I also think that 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 works really well when you know what triggers you. But a yes. lot of a lot of times people get triggered. There, there for me, there are a couple of different kinds of triggers. One is from a trauma history, which it's easier to to be yeah. able to come up with an elevator speech because I know what my traumas are. So right. I can say, right, if you do these sorts of things, I'm likely to have difficulty. This is what the difficulty will look like. This is how we can handle it. But sometimes long-term relationships end up with triggers and they're triggers that are built over time. And those are kind of difficult, more difficult to manage. If you don't talk with each other about it, you you don't have a way forward. Yeah. It all comes down to communication and so much communication around triggers can feel shameful. None of us want to hurt our partners in a non-consensual way, right? And when I think about being triggered or triggering someone, I immediately feel 
hurt. And none of us want to want that to happen. Um, so that communication is so important, being able to come back possibly after the event because we couldn't do any planning and to receive the information from your partner. And in that moment, you may feel hurt, but not, ex I want to say not expressing that back at your partner. In that moment, reflecting and mirroring what your partner's experiencing and validating it, letting them know that it's hopefully okay that you're hearing them and, you know, looking at your own pain around that a little bit separate in like a separate container, right? Being able to break it apart. And this is one partner's experience. This is the other partner's experience. This is our experience. And sometimes that's not easy to do on your own. And that's, no. it's a really good time to seek out a coach or therapist. Um, if that's kind of the sole issue, a coach is usually a good portal to go to um, and and to actually deal with it with an extra container mm -hmm. and somebody who's separate yep. in the yeah. middle able to help you negotiate that, that communication in a way that's going to be less painful. Yeah, I think that's a great recommendation because especially when we're talking about triggering our partners, which happens as part of relationship dynamics. Um, a lot of times where communication gets off track or spirals into a, an uncomfortable place is when we get into that feedback loop where we're just like, you know, triggering the trigger, <laughs> right? And we want to be able to avoid that and be able to um, separate what our feelings are from our partners. Yeah. And that can be incredibly, it can be incredibly difficult without somebody else. It is in an, the yeah. It is an advanced skill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and for those of you who are kind of, what are you talking about? Well, so you have to actually be able to step away from your feelings and be objective. And even for somebody who's very well trained, that can be very difficult if it's something that is highly emotive. Yep. It goes into uh, that fight or flight response, right? We all have it. No matter what counseling we've, we've experienced, what training we've experienced, we all have the same uh, brain makeup right and we have that fight or flight response and when we've been triggered that part of our brain is what goes into action our high level thinking and how we care about other people is not usually um where we're able to think in that moment yeah so thank you very much for writing that question and i hope that answered you um and we are about four minutes till close um is there last words that you would like to leave the audience with on these topics of mental health, mental illness, and sex? I think when I think about mental health and sex, the things, the thing that comes to my mind the most is kind of going back to what I said earlier is everybody has the right to have sex. Some of us may choose not to, but everybody has the right to have sex and being able to find ways to talk to your healthcare providers, to your behavioral healthcare providers, about what your needs and desires are and where medications or therapies that you're participating in may not be supporting your sexual health. I think that's great. Um, it is really important, really important to have a way that you can really communicate well 
Sometimes I would also advise people to have a script or an advocate. It's something we didn't say before. Um, So sometimes it helps to have an advocate with you that you've talked through the issue with who can speak for you when you feel overwhelmed. I'm going to again say that even someone like me who's very well-versed and is quite able to stand up for myself can feel overwhelmed in a medical situation, particularly if you're dealing with serious issues, right? And, you know, whether or not you're going to be able to have a sexual relationship while you're looking at potentially um, medications that might save your life, for example, that you might have to stay on for many years. Yeah. You know, those things can get crossed to the point where it's very, very difficult to get words out. And so at that time, it's really good to have an advocate with you. Now, sometimes that advocate can be your partner. There are specific skills to being an advocate. They have to be able to step past their own emotions. So sometimes it's better to have a friend as an advocate than your partner because your partner is ready to kill somebody. It's unhelpful to tell the surgeon that they better do the right thing or they will the yeah or right or they're affected by these decisions as well they're your partner they may be the person you're having sex with so they're impacted by these decisions their own emotions might create you know might create a barrier to the communication I really like your idea of having a script being able to sit down before an appointment outline what questions you might have for your medical or behavioral health care providers um and knowing, having some questions that you want to ask about a medication before you get it prescribed, being able to say, what are the side effects? How might this impact arousal? How might this impact desire? How might it impact orgasm? Those are the three main questions about medications that you'd want to be able to ask. And having a piece of paper. I go to the doctor with a piece of paper yep, all so the time. So do I, I have a list on my iPad and I take notes. So I really want to thank you for joining me. This has been a great show, Nikki. Thanks for having me, Laura. My pleasure. And thank you guys for listening. If you've got more questions, you can email at lauribeth at drlauribethbisbee.com. As you see, we had one live today that came in and it got answered on the show. If you do have an idea for a show, please also send that in. Are you interested in learning more about the DS and BDSM? And do you want to learn more about Power Exchange? Well, if you're in the London, UK area, I am teaching an evening workshop on the 24th of May at Women's Emporium. This begins a series of workshops about sex and relationships that I'll be teaching there until mid-August. Do email me for details and ticket information. And I'll see you all next week when the letter is N. And N is for non-monogamy. And Ruby Johnson will be joining us then. Awesome. What a great guest. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. We hope you learned something today. But if you have more questions, go ahead and email them to Lori Beth at drlaurybethbisbee.com. Then be here next Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of the A to Z of Sex with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee on the Sexy Lifestyle Network. See you next week.
When the lights are off, that's no reason not to light things up. Lube Light lets you pop its cap for instant illumination so your lube gets applied to all the sweet spots and never the awkward ones. No more slippery midsection, unless you're into that. You can keep it turned on while you're getting down with your partner. Our ambient lighting is soft enough to never blind while you're doing the grind. No matter what lube gets you vibing, it's compatible with Lube Light. Easier to turn on than your last partner, guaranteed. Get yours today at lubelights.com. Also available on Amazon and SheVibe. Maximize your orgasms and just let go. The Throes of Passion Waterproof Pleasure Blanket guarantees to keep your sheets dry no matter how wet it gets. From massage oils to lubes and beyond, we've got your bed covered. So just throw it down and get it on and get lost in your very own Throes of Passion. Then toss it aside and bask in the afterglow of great sex in warm, dry sheets. The all-new Naked Fleece provides a soft and sexy playscape, while the stay-dry barrier protects your bed, your couch, and even your carpet. It's machine washable, large enough to cover a king-size bed, and light enough to travel discreetly. To get your own Throes of Passion waterproof pleasure blanket, visit thesexylifestyle.com and order yours today. That's thesexylifestyle.com. Great sex starts now.